And so that portion of scripture is in Genesis chapter 50. It's right at the end of his life. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. So this is the end, and so know that this is a spoiler alert. If for some reason you have no idea what Joseph's life looks like, if you've never read it, if you were not a fan of Donny Osmond, and so you've never sung any of the Technicolor Dreamcoat songs, if you have no idea what happened, spoiler alert, this is at the end of, Jesus, of Joseph's story. And it's really a raw conversation that's filled with emotion. It starts in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. There it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So, the conversation we're about to have, this is not the first time that Joseph has this conversation with his brothers. Of course, Joseph's brothers had betrayed him. Joseph gets put in a position of power, and now they had to come back to him 17 years before, and he had this same conversation with them then. But here they are 17 years later, and something significant has changed. You see, most of Joseph's brothers are not full-blood brothers. They're half-brothers. And they're connected through Joseph's father, Jacob. So if Jacob dies, Joseph's connection to his brothers is severed. And so for Joseph's brothers, of course, then you could understand some of their fear. And Jacob was their safety net. Maybe Joseph has been storing up vitriol and anger. And maybe he's going to visit vengeance upon us now. For whatever reason, they're afraid. Their safety net is gone. And so they are concerned because Jacob dies. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So there's a couple things that are really interesting about this couple verses here. Number one, it seems a little contrived. Right? Joseph was there when Jacob died. He was in the room. He threw himself on his father and wept once he died. Why didn't Jacob just say this to Joseph? Maybe they're making it up. Maybe they're so concerned that they decide we can use him as a bargaining chip one more time. And they say, your father gave this command. Or maybe Jacob really did, and maybe he didn't just want to tell Joseph. Maybe he told the brothers, hey, you guys need to go and you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe he, this is the first time, by the way, that they actually ask for forgiveness. So maybe Jacob was pushing them to take that step. We don't know. But there's something else that's interesting about this. There's several things. First off, the brothers aren't the ones who ask for forgiveness. Who asks for forgiveness? A messenger. They send a messenger to ask for forgiveness. Liz, could you grab me a water, please? They send a messenger to ask for forgiveness. And the messenger says, say to Joseph, or, or your father gave this command, thank you. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Three words in there are all the words sin. Transgression, 
sin, and evil. The only one from the Old Testament that they're missing is iniquity. They get three of the big four. This is like the unholy trinity of evil. They recognize that they've messed up. And so in their asking for forgiveness, they use three words to say what they did wrong to him. Not only that, but after they say, your father gave this command, then they actually ask for it through this messenger. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So not only do they call on the name of their connection through their father, They also call on the name of the God of their father. If it's not enough that he would forgive them because of the fact that they have the same father, maybe it'll be enough that he'll forgive them because they have the same God. And while their dad may be dead, their God certainly is not. So there's some real manipulation here. They send this messenger and they don't even come themselves, at least at this point, in the paragraph. You see Joseph's response. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I don't know why he wept. We don't know why he cried. Maybe he was just a crier. (laughs) Maybe he cried because of the fact that he had this conversation with them 17 years before. He obviously didn't get it then. Maybe he cries because of the fact that they're using his father and his father's death in order to get forgiveness from them because of their fear or whatever else. But for some reason, he cries. And it says that as he's weeping, finally his brothers arrive. Verse 18. Verse 18 says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So, so they send the messengers ahead to actually ask for forgiveness so that when they can come in, all they do is they throw, them, they throw themselves on the ground before him and lay before him and said, Okay, so we're your servants. You can do whatever you want with us. You have complete power over us, which is not news to Joseph. This is true. He could do whatever he wanted to them, and if he wanted them to be his servants, they would have been his servants. But you can see in this that they're working here. This is something they've thought through. And you can tell why even. Later on in the chapter, or in the verse 21, it says, so do not fear. This is, again, spoiler alert, Joseph's response at the end. He says, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And your little ones. So you can understand why they would be afraid. They're not even just afraid for their own lives. They're afraid for kids and grandkids and and, and little ones. So they come and they lay before him. We don't know if it's their entire families or if it's just the brothers, but they come at least and lay before Joseph, laying it all out. He's crying. They come in. They lay down thoughtful. I mean, listen, I forgive them. (laughs) I mean, this is well thought out. I'm giving them props. Like, you're forgiven. I mean, these guys did it. They, they They pulled out all the stops. They used his father. They used God. They came in themselves and laid before him. Do with us whatever you want. I mean, I give him, I'm forgiven. And here's what Joseph says. Joseph says, verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This theology is well-formed. He is quoting from books which have not yet been written. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 15, do not repay evil for evil. I mean, this is incredible. And I wish we could stop and park here and just focus on this. We will in a couple weeks because we're going to have three weeks uh, after this introduction. And we're going to cover the pit. We're going to cover the passion, which is the temptation. Then we're going to cover the power. And that third week, we're going to come back to this verse because it's so powerful. But the reason why we're skipping it now is so that we can get to the next verse because this verse really has the key to Joseph. I believe it's the key to Genesis. I believe in many ways it's the key to understanding our own lives. And so we want to get to verse 20. Here's what it says. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says to them, as for you, Let me give you a window, he says. Let me just show you the way I'm thinking about this. Let me help you to understand my perspective and my motivations so that you can understand why I'm going to respond the way that I'm going to respond. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good so that Many, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, this verse is where we're parking. Because this verse is big. This verse has far-reaching ramifications for the ways that we think about life. And, and, And honestly, how we understand this verse speaks a whole lot about how we understand who God is. And so we're going to stop here and we're just going to look at a few words in this verse. First, I want to look at evil and good. Evil and good. Because it says that the brothers meant evil against him, but God meant it for good. Now, we don't know. It doesn't say in this verse what the evil is. We'll get to that in a second. Let's start with good, because it does say right in this verse what the good is that God meant it for good. The meant it for good that he, that he did, the, the way God worked it for good, was to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Who are the many people? Your translation, if you have a different translation besides the ESV, which is what I'm reading from today, because that's God's Bible, and, um, but your version might say something like many peoples or multitudes of peoples. And, and actually, in that, there's probably a better translation there. Multitudes of peoples, many peoples are, will be kept alive. Who benefited from this? Who is the good to? Well, it's to Joseph. Joseph, as a result of what God did, Joseph survives. Not only does he survive, he flourishes. The good here is to Joseph. Who else is it to? Well, it's to his brothers. It's to the ones who enacted evil against him. His brothers benefit as a result of the good that God does. Who else? Well, the Egyptians. The Egyptians get good as a result of of what happens here and how God moves in Joseph's life. They end up having food in the surplus they built up, and then during the famine they had food as a result of what God did. In fact, it's not even just the Egyptians. It says that the peoples around Egypt actually come and benefit as a result of what God does in Joseph's life. So the good here is to a whole lot of people. And the good here is a whole lot of good. 
In fact, this is probably the first time that you see that Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, where God promised to Abraham that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the first time that you see the seeds, really, of that blessing really taking hold. This is incredible. Eventually, it'll, of course, be fulfilled in Jesus. But here we see the, I mean, this is, I mean, before this, man, they didn't act like they were blessing the nations. But Joseph, here you see the beginnings of that. This is a whole lot of good. So let's look at the evil. The evil. You meant evil against me. Well, it doesn't say what the evil is in this verse. But we know what it is from the story of Joseph. The evil is the fact that he was thrown in a pit. The evil is the fact that he was sold into slavery. The evil is the fact that false accusations were made against him. The evil is the fact that he was thrown into a dungeon. So what they meant evil against him, we know that it means that he was thrown into that pit. That's a lot of evil. So you have a lot of evil that they meant for him. But then God meant a lot of good. Okay? Well, now I want to focus on a different word. I want to focus on the word meant. Because different translations translate this word differently as well. In the ESV, it's meant. But in uh, KJV, or NIV, it's intended. In other translations, it's actually devised. That they devised. And I honestly think, I think if I were to choose one that was my favorite, it would be devised. Because the brothers didn't just think bad thoughts about Joseph. They didn't just hope bad things would happen to Joseph. They didn't just make evil plans against Joseph. They enacted evil plans They thought evil thoughts, they hoped evil things, they planned evil things, and then they enacted evil against him. And I think that devised has more than just a thoughtful, it has an actual action to it. And I think it's more than intention here, it is actually acting on it. But the same word that's used here to talk about the evil that they did, they devised evil against him, is the same word that is used right after that when it says, but God devised good towards me. God devised it for good. Which means that God didn't just think good thoughts towards Joseph. He didn't just hope that good things would happen to Joseph. He didn't just make good plans for Joseph. He thought good thoughts. He made good plans. And then he acted on those plans. He devised it for good. So when I read this passage and I read this phrase and I read this sentence, at some point this question starts poking up in the back of my brain. I don't know if it started for you yet. A little itch right in the back of your brain. And if not, let me just give you a little itch. How does the devising God does, how does God's devising relate to the brother's devising? Is it that, well, God is up in heaven and he thinks, I need to save Joseph. 
and I need to save the brothers, and I need to save the Egyptians and the nations around there. I can see the weather patterns moving. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to make the brothers get jealous and then make the brothers take Joseph and throw him into a pit. And then I'm going to have to make Potiphar's wife seduce him. And when he doesn't give in to that temptation, I'm going to have to make them throw him into the dungeon. Is God like a puppeteer in heaven? And he's walking Judah over. All right. Now, grab him and throw him in the pit. Is that what God's doing in heaven? Is he just a puppet master and he's overriding the, the decisions and all that's happening in everybody else's life? This is a big question. It's not just, this is not just a, a question that's an academic question because it has, again, far-reaching ramifications. How we understand the relationship between God's devising and the brother's devising has huge ramifications for us. And it really comes down to one statement. I want to be really careful here because I've heard people make this statement. In fact, I've made this statement myself. You've probably made this statement. It's the statement, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And the idea behind this statement is that, well... God is doing this. He's causing this thing, which is evil, in order to bring about this good later on. That he's, all, he, he's, he's making this happen, and, and, and there's a reason behind it. I just don't see what it is yet. And man, that's a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought when you're sitting in a bed in the hospital to think everything happens for a reason. It's a comforting thought when you're sitting by the bed of somebody else to think everything happens for a reason. It's also an incredibly scary thought when there's a mass murder. God had a reason for that senseless act of violence. When there is that sickness, God caused your sickness for a reason. Tonight when you go home, you stub your toe against the door frame in your house. God smited your toe for a reason. It's a scary thought. And quite honestly, what that makes us is puppets. And it makes God a puppeteer. We're his playthings. And that causes me to ask a couple more questions. Do I really think God needs playthings? And number two, if he does, do I really think that I'm the best plaything he could make? You see, it's a really simplified thought to think that everything happens for a reason, and it can be comforting, but really it's only half true. And here's how I know it's half true. Because if it were completely true, that means that everything happens is happening according to God's will. Okay, but then... In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that his will will come on earth as it is in heaven, which means, okay, so was Jesus just like, yeah, I need him to burn some time until they make it to heaven, so I need to give him a prayer to recite. Is it just a prayer that has no purpose? 
Or in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, you know, I'm, praying, I'm going on this trip, and I want you to pray that God's will is done. Was that a superfluous prayer? He's just like, why not, you know? Or was it a real prayer, saying, I want God's will to be done? Another question is this. If Potiphar's wife tempted him by God's control, then what about James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that God, don't say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So it can't have been God who was using Potiphar's wife to tempt Joseph. Which means there's something else at work here. Instead of saying, okay, God is the one who's doing this puppet master, we recognize, and it comes down to the phrase. Look at the phrase again. Look at the phrase. It says, it says uh, uh, that you devised evil against me, but God devised it for good. Who devised the evil? The brothers. They're the ones who created it. They're the ones who made it happen. What does God do? And and this is really very important. Okay? God devised it. The it was already there. Okay? They created it. You devised the evil against me. God then took it, which existed, and devised it for good. This is super important. Because what that means is that God is not the author of your evil. And if he's not the author of your evil, okay, it's not as simple and it's not as easy to understand. And quite honestly, it's not even maybe as comforting as we might want it to be. But if God is not the author of our evil, that means he doesn't overrule our lives. Instead, he works within them. Which I think is even more beautiful. Because when I step back, It's kind of like I drive Claire to school, and when I drive her to school, I always tell her a story. And I tell these stories, and almost every single one of them ends up being about chipmunks or squirrels. And I tell these stories, and normally they'll have two, three, or four characters. And I have about ten minutes where I can just tell her the story, and normally very linear, and it's, it's great. And then I have a different kind of story, which is something I picked up actually in improv class. It's called the beep story, which is when... When what we call a beep story, that means that when I'm telling a story and I want Claire to jump in, what I'll do is I'll say beep, and Claire has to pick up right where I left off and keep going with the story, and then when she's done, she beeps it and it comes right back to me. Let me tell you what happens with the stories when I beep it over to Clara. What is a very linear story becomes nonlinear. And what is a story with four characters becomes a story with 40 characters. Because it splinters. And then it's my responsibility when she beeps it back for me to weave those storylines together and bring it back to an end which is maybe actually makes some sense somewhere. It's incredibly difficult. And I give myself props. Because <laughs> I've only got 10 minutes. And we're talking about 40 storylines. What's incredible to think of, brain-stopping to think about, is that God is not in heaven writing one storyline, 
but he is letting billions of people in on the story. And there are so many storylines that are running side by side. And somehow God is getting in the midst of it and weaving it together. Not just so that it gets to a, an end, but that it comes to a good end. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says that, that those who love him, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. So he allows us our own way and then... Man, there's evil that's enacted. And there's bad things that happen. And, and yes, man, for every, there, it, it, technically, everything happens for a reason. There are causes and there are effects. And sometimes the cause is our own sin or our own bad decisions. Sometimes it's the sin or the bad decisions of somebody else that causes that effect. And sometimes that effect is just a result of the sins that Adam and Eve did. And, and as a result, the whole earth and all of creation is fallen, and there are things that happen. But in spite of that, he takes those storylines and he weaves them together, not in 40, uh, 40 storylines and not in 10 minutes, but for all of history and, uh, and all of those who love him. He weaves them together. That's an incredibly beautiful thing. It's not as comforting, though, when you're in a dark place. But the phrase, I believe, should not be everything happens for a reason, but instead, God give, gives reason to everything that happens. God gives reason to everything that happens. He takes evil and somehow devises good out of it, which is why we don't go and tell an innocent, abused child that God had a reason for allowing that terrible past. That is nonsense. God hates that evil. He yearns to be able to save that child and heal those hurts and restore that person through Jesus Christ. And if you look in scriptures, you will find over and over and over again. Let me tell you what you will find and then what you won't find. What you will find is God saying what causes things. Because you obeyed, because you rejected, because of your unbelief, because of your faith, because you walked with me, because you didn't. What he never says is only because of my sovereignty, only because I preordained it. Never once do you find that sentence in scripture. It is not that God is a puppet master in heaven moving us around. Instead, he allows us this free will. And as we make decisions, somehow... He takes those storylines and weaves them together with the promise that somehow he is going to work it for good. And it is mind-blowing to me how he could do that. But he does. And sometimes I think when we're seeking the will of God, we use that everything happens for a reason to just say, well, if the door is open, that must be God. And, and I think sometimes God does lead us with open doors and closed doors, but sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he wants us to walk up to a door that's closed and start knocking until it opens. Sometimes he wants us to, I mean, what, what about the Israelites when they came to the promised land and Jericho was what? It was shut up. Oh, well, that must not be God's will. No. They marched around it until the walls came down. Sometimes God wants us to walk up to a, a door and kick it in. 
It's much more difficult to seek God's will that way. And I'm not saying go kick in a bunch of doors. What I'm saying is this, that if we just take the easy path saying that must be God's will, I'll guarantee you, you will not end up in the will of God. We know that there's a path that is wide and a gate that is large. And that is not salvation. So I look at this and I think, how can a God, how can one Take all of these stories and the story of Joseph's life and you see the evil and where it comes from. And it's so obvious. You just read the story and it's right there in words in front of you and phrases and sentences and verses and chapters. What is not as obvious until you read this key verse is the fact that God is somehow in the midst of that, in the evil, devising that together to bring about good. And it's a beautiful, beautiful good. Welcome to Meant for Good. During this series, my hope and my prayer is not only that you would see God working in Joseph's life, but more importantly that you would see him working in your life in that same way. And I really, truly do not know what has happened in your life, and I don't know how many times you've been told or even maybe said yourself, everything happens for a reason, thinking that somehow God is the author of your evil. I do know a few things. I know that no matter what has been or what evil you have endured, God amazingly, incredibly, again, brain-stoppingly will work all of that together for good if you have been called according to his purpose. I also know that I don't understand good. I know that the word good is beyond me to understand that my mind cannot comprehend what is actually good. And in fact, I am absolutely certain of it, according to Scripture, that faith in Jesus Christ does not guarantee a quote-unquote good life as we understand it. But I am absolutely certain, without a doubt, that it guarantees a perfect eternity. See, this morning, the greatest good that God intends towards us is that we would spend eternity in his presence. And that is a guarantee that some of you, God has brought you here today and worked about in order that you would walk in the doors and you would hear that. There's a perfect eternity for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Accept his sacrifice and and announce that he is Lord. And this morning, I can guarantee you that perfect eternity is intended for you. Don't think it's intended for somebody else. It is intended for all of us. And he amazingly allows us to receive it or not. Okay? This is big. It helps us to understand how our God works. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing that our God does. Beautiful thing. And we don't want to miss it because we think that he's just in heaven, the only one who makes decisions. He allows all of us to make decisions. The question is, what decision will we make? Father, I thank you for Joseph's life. 
And I thank you for this verse, which is so important for us to grasp and understand. We thank you that you are a sovereign God. We thank you that there are events that are set in stone like Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That there are things that you ordained from the beginning of time. We thank you that you're a God with foreknowledge. You know what's going to happen before it happens. And you're a God who is omniscient. You know way beyond what we know. And our brains cannot comprehend the moment we try to. They just plain stop working when we think about how you could bring together billions of storylines and somehow work good out of evil in spite of the fact that you're not the one who authored it. Somehow you bring good and you bring it about for good. And this morning, I believe there are people in this room right now who need to hear that message. God is not the author of your evil. May that sink into hearts. God didn't do this to you. But he can take that evil and incredibly weave it together to a good end. Thank you for that promise, oh God. Thank you that when we're in the pit, oh God, when we're in the pit, that somehow you made sure that Joseph, when he was in the pit, there was no water in there, and he didn't drown. You did it ahead of time. God, that's your working. That's what you did. And this morning, I just pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, which has been so real in this room, you would drive that message into hearts. In your name, Jesus, I ask. Amen. This week, I was up at the hospital with Daryl Long. And Sam will attest to this. We were standing there, and the doctor came in, and they were going to put a stent in the cerebral artery, the artery right at the base of the brain, because it was 85% clogged up. So they were going to put a stent in, and they were going in with the fiber and putting this stent in so that they could allow the blood flow to start again. Beforehand, they had put him on Plavix to thin his blood in order to, that it would continue to flow. And the doctor comes in before the surgery and says to Daryl and all of us standing there, you know, something's wrong. The Plavix isn't working. Your blood isn't thinning. And we're, okay. And that doesn't seem right. It's not what we want. It's not the way Plavix is supposed to work. What's up? He said, we're going to have to get you on some other medication that will work for you. And then they went in and did the surgery and put the stint in. And when they were pulling the fiber back out, they ripped open a hole on that cerebral artery. And the doctors afterwards were like, I don't know what happened. This happened so rarely. And I mean, canceled his appointments for the day he was there. And other doctors were, this happens so rarely. And they do the CT scan, and it turns out the bleeding on the brain wasn't what it was supposed to be because the blood thinner wasn't working. 
And now he's up and he's moving around when he should be dead. Before the surgery even happened, God made sure the plavix wasn't working. That's what my God does. In the early service, I got a call from Laverne Jackson. Carol Jackson went up to the hospital on Friday night because he was in AFib. Doctors were supposed to get him out of there yesterday, but the paperwork wasn't ready. They couldn't get it together, and so he had to stay overnight again. And in the middle of the night, he went into AFib again, but he wasn't at home. He was in the hospital. My God does that. He's not the author of your evil, but he can somehow miraculously take that evil and weave it together for good. And know this morning that that's what he seeks to do for you. And if you are here and you do not know that God, you have an opportunity to meet him this morning. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. Maybe you need prayer this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you and drawing you and you're here for a reason this morning and you didn't even know it. God's been working in order to make sure you were here today in order for the Holy Spirit be able to lay a hold of your heart. So even as we worship, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come down to the front. If you need prayer this morning, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm going to invite you to just step out. And when that prayer team asks you, what what can we pray with you about? Just say, listen, God brought me here today to hear this message because he loves me and he wants good for me. And he wants to take all that evil and he wants to work it together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And just say, I need to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And this morning they will pray with you and walk you through what that looks like as the worship team leads us.
His home. 